There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, here we are in October. You know how I know it's October? It was because the people in the neighborhood are putting up, you know, Halloween decorations on their houses and things like that. No, no, sadly, we're not. Are you handing out candy? I would love to, but I think I have a, a dinner engagement that evening. You are so lame. You're going to hide in your basement and watch a TV, aren't you? No, literally, we're going out for dinner. I have a friend with a birthday on October 31st, and we believe it's important to celebrate on the day. This is the worst excuse I've ever heard. I will be handing out candy. As a matter of fact, I've decided this year I'm going to hand out full-size chocolate bars in my neighborhood. Good for you. Why not? Go all in. Yeah, you know what? It's not like the kids are going to hold back on eating lots of candy. So whether they get a a few little ones or a nice big one, it, no impact overall. So yeah, but you'll be the you'll be the favorite house on the block for sure. Well, we'll see. I'm going to buy exactly 12 chocolate bars and once those are gone, we're going to turn the lights out. Maybe get those gigantic Toblerone bars, you know, that are about like three pounds. Oh, they look like lightsabers? Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Uh, Okay, well, anyways, yes, Halloween is upon us, which means there's treats. Many people did not get treated well in September, Greg. No, and certainly for anyone that has opened up their September statements, which by now everybody should have received it, it was not a happy surprise on the statements. But it happens. It does. And you have to expect volatility. But I think when you do open their statement, and of course you're faced with a, a number that's lower than the previous month, we don't do this often. I thought maybe this time we could just talk about, well, what actually happened in September to result in our portfolios or client statements being negative? Which is a little weird to do because we're also telling people not to focus on short-term results. Exactly right. But I guess this is what we're doing today. We're just going to look at a small period of time. And again, and I think the point being is this will explain what happened. It doesn't provide us with any guidance in terms of what we should do from an investment standpoint going forward because we know what the answer to that is. Stick with your plan. But one of the ways to feel more in control of what's going on in your financial life is to understand what's going on in the world and how that impacts your uh, financial situation. And last week we talked about stock picking and the Magnificent Seven. And the Magnificent Seven did not deliver in September, as did nobody really. And there are people that are going to say, yeah, it's the September effect. You've heard of this term. There's people that use these things like when in May go away. I can't remember all of the timing ones. And it just so happens that the September wasn't a very good September. The one I like is buy when it snows, sell when it goes. I actually hadn't heard that one before. It's the same, same concept of sell in May and go away. But it doesn't work, I think is the point I'm trying to make. Just because September sucked this year, does not mean that the September effect is a real thing. Is that a, is that a technical investment term? Yeah, sucked. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just chance. And there's going to be people that are going to do some data mining and say, well, yeah, but we knew it was because of this or because of that. But maybe you know now, looking back, but you didn't know going into September. That's right. Well, what are some of the numbers? So let's just say, okay, so if somebody looked at their portfolio and saw it was down somewhat in September, okay, that's probably because of the following. If you look at the Canadian market, and the S&P TSX Composite Index down 3.7% in September. That's not a great number. The S&P 500 Index was down 4.9%. And to your point, okay, well, down 4.9% on the S&P, that's a pretty bad September. It was still up almost 12% on the year. Well, and actually, year-to-date, because I have more recent numbers, as of October 18th, the TSX is actually up 1.3% year-to-date, and the S&P 500 is up 13.3% year-to-date, which includes September. That's right. And so, and just to show that this was not a Canadian or a U.S. issue, the uh, MSCI World Index was down 4.4%. Even Japan, here's, here's an interesting thing. Japan, the Nikkei 225, was down 2.3%. Here's a question for you, which I think I've previewed what the answer might be. What would be the best performing international market this year? You're giving me a loaded question? Yeah, it's Japan. It's up 22% this year. When was the last time anyone talked about investing in Japan? I think the Japanese 80s? stock market peaked in the 80s and has basically been on a downward or a flat trajectory ever since. That is really interesting. I didn't actually realize that because I was looking through some other information about interest rate movements by central banks. And of course, in Canada, we left our central bank, anyways, left our rates unchanged, right, recently, as they did in England. European Central Bank increased interest rates by a quarter point. The Bank of England did not raise rates. Bank of Canada did not raise rates. The Bank of Japan did not raise rates. Do you know what the Bank of Japan's interest rate is? 0.1%, where Canada is 5%. Yet, as you just pointed out, the Japanese stock market is up 22%, and the Canadian stock market is up 1.3%. Interesting. The Japanese stock market has been in the doldrums for years, maybe decades, and it goes through these periods of some volatility and some maybe some sharp movements up and reversed. And I guess it kind of makes the point when we sit here and saying, well, gee, I guess we all should have been invested in Japan last year. No, not really. It's interesting, and Japan probably will be part of anybody's well-diversified portfolio because you want to be able to participate when you do get a, an event like that happening. But again, it does not indicate to us that we should be moving ahead and adding a lot more of Japanese equities into our stock portfolios. Uh, just to finish off with a couple of other numbers, gold was down 4.7% in September. Silver down 9.3%. Where was there signs of life? Well, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was up 8.6%. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing if you own energy stocks. It might be a bad thing if you're concerned about inflation. Yeah, I was going to say it's bad for inflation. Uh, The last data point that I just wanted to highlight from September was the Canadian bond market. Because bond market has been the source of much discussion and hand-wringing over 2022 And here we are in 2023, the Canadian Bond Universe Index was down 2.6% in September. So the point being from all of those numbers is really that 
It's a bad month for stocks. It was a bad month for bonds. It was a bad month for most commodities. And that happens from time to time. But the key thing is, what do we expect going forward? And when I say that, I don't mean, what do we expect the stock market to do? What do we expect the bond market to do? But what economic indicators are we looking at that will help at least shape our understanding of the world that we're living in? And again, not to translate that into stock and bond returns, but more just to understand what's going on in the world. The information I'm going to discuss and we're going to discuss comes from a bunch of different sources. It comes from uh, CIBC Global Asset Management and CIBC Economics, which, of course, their job is to look at what's going on in the world and, and try to frame it for us. It comes from RBC Global Asset Management, so a, ver- a variety of sources. And again, what we're talking about won't be controversial. It'll just be what's there to feel good about in the market, what's there or in the economy, I should say. And what else is going on that we should be aware of? Well, I mean, actually, there's a few other sources we're using, like we're using the Wall Street Journal and Forbes and S&P. So, I mean, we get our data sources. The data comes from, from a lot of places. A lot of places, for yeah. sure. I guess the first question is, well, what's the good news? Is there good news up there? What are some themes that look positive? One is that some of the prior economic headwinds are getting a little bit better. And those would be things like inflation. You know, inflation, yeah, you, you get kind of a a tick up or a tick down that was maybe unexpected uh, from time to time. But inflation is far less than 50% of what it was a year, year and a half ago. So the real numbers were July of 2022 in the US inflation was running around 9% and September numbers came in at around 3.7 or something. So I think where there's a big misunderstanding of that though, Greg, is it doesn't mean that it's gone down from 9% to 3.7%. It means that it's only grown 3.7% higher than the previous 9%. Exactly. And it's sort of the inflation number serves as fuel for what happens in other areas of the economy and things like interest rates, of course. So the central banks are, are laser focused on inflation as their primary determinant of, of what they do with interest rates. But There's also the argument that there can be quite a lag period between changes in interest rates and effect on the economy. And so I think that's why many people believe that's why we've seen a pause in interest rate hikes in Canada and the U.S. this past month. We'll see what happens going forward. Well, and actually the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, talked about how consumers need to be prepared for higher for longer. So higher interest rates for longer than first anticipated, which is contrary I got to apologize to anybody I spoke to about inflation two years ago, because at the time we talked about how that hyperinflationary period was transitory and we fully believed it at the time. Now, if you fast forward two years or a year and a half, you'd say, well, we were wrong. Maybe we were, or maybe just the definition of transitory is wrong. So like what's transitory? Is it three weeks, three months, two years? That is up for debate. Yeah, totally agree. And so uh, some other positive things that are happening are the economies are still moving forward. So Canada and the U.S. are still showing economic growth, despite, you know, what's happened to interest rates and inflation. Certainly, there, there is no consensus on whether or not there's going to be a recession. The jury is out. Some people believe there will be, and others believe there won't be, and others assign percentage percentages to it. But in the end... I got one here. I got a percentage that's yeah, been go assigned. For it. So this is interesting to me. This comes from Forbes. 
And it says that the bond market is currently pricing in an 18.3% chance the Fed will raise rates by another quarter percent on November 1st, and an 81.7% chance they'll choose not to raise rates again for the rest of the year. And they're pricing in that rates will actually start to get cut the middle of 2024. I can get behind that, and only because interest rates have gone up so much that there's a breaking point. They've gone up, they've brought inflation numbers down, and as Powell says, and the rest of us have to get behind a little bit, they're going to stay higher for a little bit longer than we thought. And that's one of the positives as well, and that is that if we're not at the end of the tightening cycle, we're very near the end. And so, so that's very positive. Oh, wait, here's another number I was trying to get to. The uh, recession model. So the New York Fed's recession model does predict a 60.8% chance of a U.S. recession sometime in the next 12 months, which doesn't really tell us a lot. And recessions, when they are called, are always backwards looking. So by the time they actually call a recession, the recession may have already been over. Exactly. And that's in line. RBC Economics uh, has the chance of a recession at 65%. Okay, so 61, 65, same number. Exactly. And what does it mean? It still means there's a 30 or 40 to 40% chance possibly of not having a recession. So can you count on that? Can you make investment decisions? I don't think so. What's going on in the, that could be negative going forward? Well, some new economic headwinds. We're seeing things like salaries are starting to increase. You're seeing more union action and that's forcing up wages, which in turn can help to fuel inflation, not the other way. Interest rates could rise further. And and here we're talking about, you know, one of the things that happened in September was interest rates went up. They didn't go up because the central bank raised interest rates. They went up because the bond markets pushed longer term interest rates up. Okay. And we've talked about this before. The central banks really only control the short end of the yield curve, meaning they control the overnight rate and that factors in towards two-year bonds. But when you're talking about the 10-year bonds and the 30-year bonds, those interest rates are set by the bond market. And therefore, when interest rates are rising now at the long end of the yield curve or the longer dated bonds, that's the bond market and reflecting their inflation expectations going forward. The focus these days has been on the uh, two-year rate. It hasn't been on the 10 or 30-year rate. That's right. What you're saying is that the market is pushing the 10 and 30-year rate up. That's right. Based on their expectations of inflation perhaps lasting longer and that kind of thing. The housing market in the U.S. particularly is starting to weaken. Mortgage rates in the U.S. are now 8%, which is significantly higher than they were a couple of short years ago uh, when they were less than half of that. Yeah. Now, I was reading something else about the housing market, though. It talked about how the U.S. price, anyways, like the average price, has actually been maintaining its value despite higher borrowing costs due to supply-demand imbalances. So, yes, the U.S. and Canadian housing markets may weaken again, but as long as there's a demand for houses and the demand is higher than the supply, the price will stay higher. It's always lots of factors affecting the price of a house. And it's going to be affected by, again, borrowers' ability to to cover a mortgage with 8% interest rate. As you say, supply and demand of housing, a low supply means that prices are going to stay high. So that's offsetting possibly the issue of mortgage affordability. And all of these factors, again, will play a role. So we talked about inflation, the war in Ukraine, which now seems like old news based on what's going on 
you know, in the Middle East. But the war in the Ukraine was seen as, uh, you know, as a possibly negative for the economy because it might push oil prices higher. That didn't really completely happen, maybe happened for a short period of time. We now have the situation in the Middle East, which may cause oil prices to rise. Same story, particularly if it turns into a larger conflict than it is currently. Lots of changes over the last year or so in terms of economic headwinds and, and now tailwinds. We talked about the fact that many people believe that recession is becoming likely. If it's a 65 or 35, 60, 40 or 50, 50 chance of a recession, it means you can't really make a bet on that. You just have to be prepared for what might happen. I'm still in the camp that a recession's already happened. I mean, I just, I can't get past this. Just the uh, economic definition of a recession, how two negative quarters of GDP growth did that. That happened back in 2022. Yeah, so I still don't quite understand why the National Bureau of Economic Research hasn't said there was a recession back during this period. So what's the net of this? Okay, well, we've got, to me, a couple of key things that will affect our portfolios, things like higher interest rates, higher yields. Okay, those can exert a drag on growth in the economy. What does it do for portfolios? It's quite beneficial. We know that when you invest in bonds, for example, the yield going in, so the initial yield of your bond portfolio, is a pretty good indicator of what you can expect to earn over time on that bond. And so now with yields higher, 10-year yields in the U.S. close to 5%, a little over 4% in Canada, that's a good indicator of what a balanced conservative bond portfolio will generate going forward. And that's a heck of a lot better than it has been for many years. Well, and I think the expected return in fixed income is actually quite high because not only are you getting those higher yields on newer issued bonds, but all those older issued bonds that still have to mature that went down 10 or 12% in price have to go back up 10 or 12% in price. Plus you get the coupon, plus it's being probably matured into and reinvested into a now a higher coupon paying bond. I mean, life is good in the future for bondholders as long as they continue to hold those bonds to maturity. Exactly right. And just on the other side of that, when you look at the stock market, and we've talked about how in the U.S. you talk about the Magnificent Seven, you know, the seven stocks that are responsible for most of the growth of the S&P 500. And this is just a a little data year to date from uh, January to the end of September. The Magnificent Seven stocks earned 58%. Whereas if you look at the S&P 500, which of course includes all of those stocks, it did 11.3% to the end of uh, September. Mm -hmm. If you look at the S&P 500 on an equal weighted basis, meaning that rather than letting the biggest stocks have the biggest impact on the portfolio, you just took all 500 stocks and equal weighted them, the actual performance to the end of September was negative 0.2%. So it's safe to say that those seven stocks are responsible for the entire return on the S&P 500 year-to-date. Again, what does that mean going forward? Who knows? But we know that when those seven stocks took a breather in September, that had a pretty negative effect on the overall market. Why don't we talk a little bit about how all of this feeds into what investors should or shouldn't do going forward. So one of the things that we hear a lot about is, well, you know, why should I invest in bonds? Bonds have performed poorly maybe just invest in cash, okay? And the data uh, suggests that 
While it may feel good in the short term, in the longer term, three-year annualized returns by investing in cash versus bonds has not worked out all that well. And what this does is it, it looks at moving into cash one hike before the last hike. So the last interest rate hike, we don't know when it's going to be, but let's say the last one was the last one. So if you invested in cash just before that, three years later, during the period of the Gulf War recession, cash underperformed bonds by about one, one and a half percent annualized over three years. There was a mid-cycle adjustment. Anybody that was around remembers 1994 was a very bad year for bonds. Interest rates went up very quickly during 1994. Subsequent to that period, three years after that, bonds earned 14.3% annualized as opposed to 5.3% for cash and so on. And even if you look at the COVID period, 2019 to 2020, bonds earned 4.5%, cash 1.1%. It's tempting, believe me, I get it, to want to go into cash when you can get cash yields of 5% on three-month treasury bills. Maybe you didn't hear me though, Greg. Maybe I should repeat myself. You can get 5% on a one or two-year term deposit. The expected return for bonds over the next two-year period is like 17% based off of maturities and yield, potentially. So yeah, it was just to prove your point, really, is that like, yeah, you can definitely get 5% in a one-year term deposit. So what? I mean, inflation's running basically at the same number. We've got to get more than that. So listen, uh, we've got lots of data here. We talked, we've talked about this in the, in the past, the cushioning effect of bonds during a recession. We know that bonds did not behave the way we expected them to last year. Typically, people expect bonds to give a positive return when stocks are negative. But again, I think we're looking over what's been a relatively short period of time when you consider that essentially since 1982, bonds have been in a bull market. Bonds started with interest rates near 20% in the short term back in 1982, and they proceeded down to zero in between the period of the uh, global financial crisis and uh, post-COVID. Well, there's actually some that say that even when COVID hit back in uh, March of 2020, the immediate response to central banks was basically to take interest rates back to zero, that they shouldn't have done that. And I think now, and everything is crystal clear in hindsight, uh, there were many opportunities to normalize interest rates over the previous period of 2009 through 2022 that weren't taken advantage of. Even when I was down in California at Future Proof this past September, there was a guy named Jeffrey Gunlack speaking there. Jeffrey Gunlack, the king of bonds, runs a company called Double Line. He made a statement. I actually didn't disagree with it. A uh, little me, of course, not disagreeing with the billionaire Jeffrey Gunlack. But uh, he said, when they started the rate hike cycle to bring down inflation, instead of going up a quarter percent of, at a time, they should have gone up like 2%. Yeah. And that would have slowed things immediately. That would have been kind of the shock and awe approach to, uh, to rate hikes. Now, has that ever occurred in the past, to your knowledge, like a rate hike like that? Not that I know of, but if it did, of course, it would have been during that period leading up to 1982 when Paul Volcker, who was the leader of the Fed, and the chairman decided to put an end to inflation once and for all. And that certainly worked. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just curious. So listen, what else, what else can we learn? Well, some of the same themes we've talked about in the past, because of investor behavior, very often people, our investors will redeem 
at the worst times, those times being when it seems like the period of perhaps the biggest risk and the most fear because things have gone down. And those periods tend to mark at bottoms, whether it's in a specific sector or the market as a whole. And we talk about March the 9th of 2009, then I think it was March 9th as being the very bottom of the market and people were selling on that day because it was like, I can't take it anymore. If, if the market goes down one more day, I'm out. And that often is the, is the time that marks the turnaround. Well, there was a headline that day, and I think it was the Wall Street Journal, and it was how it was like never going to get better from here. And that was exactly the day where everything got better from. And very often among contrarians, they look at certain things like redemptions, mutual fund redemptions, stock, you know, stock fund redemptions, and use those as bullish and bearish guides. And when mutual fund redemptions reach a fevered pitch, that's typically a buy signal for many contrarian investors. And so we don't want to be part of that crowd that uh, marks the bottom of a particular market. I know by the time this airs, some will have gone to our presentation that we held on uh, October 19th. But a lot of that presentation was on behavioral biases of uh, the fear trade, how unfortunately people tend to buy into markets near a top. The market starts to sell off because it goes in a cycle. People tend to buy a bit more because they hear things like dollar cost averaging. Then the market hits a trough, like it really goes down. And typical trading behavior is to sell because of fear at exactly the wrong time, which is what you just talked about. And then the market recovers, starts to go up and goes back to a new near top and people buy in. Exactly. That's the cycle of emotions and the cycle of uh, investor behavior. And it's what we want to control. What's one of the, the biggest things we do for clients that we work with is to discuss these points with them during periods of things like hypervolatility, why you don't want to sell right now why actually your expected return from here is much higher than it was when things were high. You know, I think that that's really where, you know, our discussion two weeks ago with uh, Brian Portnoy of both being a, a guide versus being a mechanic. Yes, as a mechanic, you can sell out your client's positions, but wouldn't you rather be a guide? Wouldn't they rather have you as a guide to tell them why you shouldn't if you want to reach the end? Well, I think that's a perfect way to, to end this, this section. Okay. We don't spend a lot of time talking about macroeconomic factors and things like that, because for the most part, while they're important to understand, they don't direct our investing thesis. They just maybe add some understanding to what's going on as we speak. You're not going to make any change to your portfolio today based off of something new that occurs today. And that note, we'll sign off. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminsky are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, 
but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.